0: Hello, and welcome to the NPRD podcast with Nurse Practitioner and Registered Dietitian Robin Kiewit. Eating disorders, body image, medicine, they are all interconnected. But with so many programs, techniques and advice to choose from, it's easy to be overwhelmed. Robin, with more than 25 years of experience as a Nurse Practitioner and Registered Dietitian offers help and hope for everyone families, children, and adults. Along with veteran talk show host and good friend, Jordan Rich, Robin invites you to learn much more right here on the NPRD Podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode of the NPRD Podcast. Personally, I've wanted to have this guest on here since the beginning. So hi, Beth. Thank you for being here. We are... Super lucky to have Beth Mayer. Beth is a social worker who has a private clinical practice for individuals, couples, and families struggling with anxiety, depression, and trauma. Her specialty is eating disorders, and she has been in practice for over 35 years. Beth presents and trains, and was the executive director of the Multi Service Eating Disorder Association or META in Newton for 17 years. I'm gonna keep our bio a little bit short because we know how um, highly regarded Beth is in the field. And I'll say that like anyone around this area and we're in the Northeast, like in the Boston area, if you say, well, I was talking to Beth, people know it's you. (laughs) So thank you for being on today. You are very welcome. I'd like to start off with how we met. I had worked with you having supervision in the past, connected more through Meta when I was moving into more of my private practice full-time. Um, so that I think was in about 2015, 2014. I remember doing a super, during a supervision meeting once, you just looked at me and you said, Why are you not prescribing in your private practice? Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Yep. And Uh I was was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Yep. But that's one of the many reasons I think why people appreciate you because you ask hard questions. You can ask provocative questions in a way that, you know, makes someone think and brings up a response that hopefully most of the time is appropriate.
2: (laughs) So tell us. Sometimes people don't say that they're, Good questions, but
1: I I try to get people to think. (laughs) Right. That's one of your gifts, right? So tell us what it was like, you know, what brought on the decision to move from meta to the full-time private practice for you? I'm curious. I think some listeners who don't know, you might want to know that.
2: You know, I, I am always honest about who I am as a person and as a therapist and those blend together. I actually was now this year, I hit 40 years in the field, which is absolutely, well, now it's over. I was starting in 83. And so I felt like um I loved META and I love what META stands for. And I'm still totally committed to what they do. And I have always had a little bit of a hard time with my own self-care and not overworking. I knew that there was going to be a time where I needed to find that balance more. 65 years old. I'm very proud of my aging process. I love aging. And I wanted to not work two jobs anymore. Mm, I remember. (laughs) So um, yeah, yeah, it was a hard decision. And I have, I'm so lucky in my life. I have loved all of my jobs. And I really love being a sole
1: practitioner. Mm -hmm. How do you keep up your own sense of community and collegiality as a solo clinician. What do you do in your in your life and in your practice to make that happen?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question, Robin. I think that um, as you get older, you need less because I've spent my life being involved in the field and it's not that I don't. Um, during COVID, I joined a national support group of people who are in the field. Mm -hmm. Not to talk about cases, but to talk about our own experience in isolation. And that was amazing. I have my own supervision group. And then I go to a lot of events. I just went to a dinner with maybe 10 colleagues, you know? So I really make an effort to keep in touch with my colleagues. I still do some supervision myself. So I get to see my colleagues either in person or on the screen. And I do make an effort to be with my colleagues. So I feel actually pretty good. I'm also from a family of social workers. So
1: <laughs> I've been surrounded mm-hmm. by people in the field my whole life. So you know what to do. And it sounds like the transition to private practice has served you in the ways that you were envisioning. Yeah, no, it's been a, it's
2: been it's been really fine. And I actually have not felt isolated at all.
1: So, with your caseload, are you doing a lot more family work? (laughs) I'm
2: laughing. Mm -hmm.
1: Like you know,
2: I laugh a lot. Uh, Yes, I am. Yeah, and no, I may not be in the future Mm -hmm. because family work. I love my family work. If I could see almost a lot of families during the day, I would do that. But I. I've ended up working a lot on the weekends because that is the time families can come in. And there's just a limited amount of families you can see what I really want to do. And I actually did some supervision the other day with a group and I'm like, who wants to become a family therapist? Because I feel like we are lacking good family therapists in the field of eating disorders. I work with another family therapist that I share a lot of cases with, and we talk once a week for about a half hour about our cases. Like, great. there just aren't enough of us out there. So if anybody wants to become a family therapist, just give me a call. It is
1: challenging and wonderful work. With family work, I mean, you can speak to this. There are so many different pieces because families have so many different parts that's why I think it can be both enriching and then also, you know, it's, it's, you're holding a lot. I think
2: as a family therapist, you need to hold a lot, not just from a clinical perspective, but you have to be able to be a messy therapist. I had a family in here. Two of the kids were on the floor. The dog was in my office. Things were breaking. Things were falling all over the place. We were, you know, you have to be flexible. And I think you can't have a certain way of doing things. And you got to be able to dig in and help the, 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 the teens or the children or whoever it is feel pretty comfortable yeah. Um, in your physical space. And I also think you have to f- have the parents know that you are not going to judge them no matter what gets says or anybody. So I think it really takes a lot of grounding as a therapist and, and reassurance with the families that, you know, no matter what your kids say, I'm not going to judge you no matter what you, however you respond. I know that our job is to find the love in this family and the connection. And, and that's how we have to dig in and work on it. And so it's, it's complicated
1: work, but I think it's very, very satisfying, but only for the right person. I tend to say to some of the parents that I see, we're always doing our best in every moment yes. because I want them to know that I, I really do think that's true. E- even, even like parents of teens and, you know, younger adults, I think sometimes it's important to say to them too, they don't send us home with a book, like you get sent home or maybe you have your home birth and there goes the people who helped you deliver this baby and You're you're off and running, doing it on your own or, you know, potentially with a partner or some supports. And it's it is the hardest job. I I always tell a joke that my son said to me in a
2: in a fit of anger when he was little and he looked at me, goes, you did not even have to take a test to do this, mom. I was like, you're (laughs) right. You are so right. There is no test that any parent has to take and anybody become a become a parent. Yeah. And I tell my patients that I'm like, yeah, we, uh, we, it is the hardest job. It's actually the hardest job and the best job of my life. Yeah. And I love being a clinician, but so, it's yeah, tough. I think you have to really be respectful of the process with your families. And again, I'm putting a shout out. Anybody wants to, you know, We're work in the family, field of family therapy, family come to me. I
1: was, in the eating yeah. disorder section. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you see the field going and where do you want to see the field going so i thought about
2: that question i'm not sure where the field is going i can tell you what i'd like to see i would like to see honestly i think that the residential programs and a lot of the programs are dealing with underpaid staff and not a lot of training and like not a lot of loving kindness and because it's such hard work in programs and so many people are leaving to start their practices or going to group practices. So I think that's going to keep on being problematic um, in terms of getting that level of expertise when we go in. I think there are many people that are in higher up positions that have amazing expertise. But I think that right out of graduate school, it's hard. That's really, really tough work. So I, I think that that needs to be looked at. I'm hoping that more creativity gets funded by insurances like yoga therapists, you know, people that can help in the field of eating disorders. I don't think that's covered and we need to be more creative with that. I think we need more expertise in multiple diagnoses. Yeah. You know, you can't just farm out people every time they have a new diagnosis. And in the eating disorder field, it's, you know, major depression, anxiety disorders, uh, OCD, you know, bipolar. And so yeah. it's complicated. Yeah. So I think that's hard. Yeah, those are the things that I think, and and just less turnover and more, you know, how do we keep people in the field so that they don't burn out? I feel like that's almost like a piece of work that has to happen. And when I talk to people that I have been in the field my whole life and I'm not burned out, how do you get there? How do you stay refreshed and excited um, about being in the
1: field? You spoke to that a bit a few minutes ago with your shift towards wanting to do one job, right? Not two jobs. But I think it is a big discussion. I think that's a whole other kind of podcast discussion. Although we did, we did talk, I had uh, Brooke Huminsky on and we talked about compassion fatigue. So that's some somewhat of a, a part of that. It's, an important topic and one that I know I felt after the intensity of the pandemic was over, you know, sort of last year for a while, just feeling like it was hard to take a breath. There was just, there was just so much need for so long. Uh, and I think that we're inundated. I mean, I think we all get
2: so many referrals we can't deal with and we can't take on. And so that adds to what we do every day. I mean, I know for myself, almost many times a week, I'm trying to help somebody find a therapist or nutritionist or psychiatrist, you know, because we can't take it all on. And there's no one, I mean, meta is great, but people individually get tons of calls. Right. So we try to, you know, try to have compassion for those people that are writing to us or calling us and saying, I've been looking for six months and I can't find anybody that's covered by my insurance or whatever.
1: Yeah, I think I was thinking about that too on the weekend. You know, how much time do I spend every week having conversations with folks who are seeking care that I can't help? My response is always, I may not be able to help you or if it's not someone that I can see, whether they came to me looking for a therapist, which I'm not, or, you know, it's a new nutrition case, which I'm not taking. I will put the asks out for them to make sure that they have people to see and send them to Meta at the same time. Yeah, But it, it is a chunk of time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell us as such an experienced clinician, what would you impart as your pearls to someone in the field? What would you say are the pieces that you really maybe utilize as your own pillars ways of being that you you want really other clinicians to know
2: well the first thing is i believe in laughter our work is so serious but i tell everybody that comes into my office if you cannot tolerate my loud laugh then you should not be working with me okay <laughs> if it scares you if it's you know it is automatic and i believe that we have to find laughter in the times of despair Hmm. Again, both personally and professionally. So that's really important to me. The other thing is, I think that, I don't know how to say this, but I think we're experts in everything and experts in nothing. We, if you go to a provider and they're like, I know what we need to do. Then I'm like, I'm not sure that's the right provider for you. Because this is a path that we take with our clients. Honestly, I've been doing this my whole life. I'm recovered myself. (laughs) And sometimes I don't know what that path is going to look like. And sometimes the path surprises me because my patients recover quickly. And sometimes it takes them way longer to recover. And so I think that we have to be willing to be surprised and not not act kind of high and mightier than we are. We're humans that are doing the best we can. And what I tell my patients is I'm going to be with you And I'm going to keep on trying new things or different things until I run out of ideas. But I'm not, I don't, I can't tell you today, this is the path we're going to take to help you recover.
1: I think to your point, the willing to be surprised, I also feel like, I I think you'd agree, we learn from our patients every day, when I see a new patient for a new medicine assessment, it's me learning about their life and who they are as a person. And when we go to what are possibilities for medicine, it's a discussion. It's what they have, what what have they learned? What do they think about what is right for them? What's wrong for them? It's not about, Here, here's your prescription. I'll see you next week or next month. It doesn't work that way, I, I don't think. Uh, No.
2: And I think you have to have great respect for your clients and listen to them. Sometimes we may agree, sometimes we may not. But, you know, I'll always be willing to try it their way first. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, I cannot go into a program again, I'm like, okay, let's do the best we can. Let's try to be creative. I understand that. And you have to be respectful if I am at a point where I feel like that needs to be examined, right? Right. I think it's really having total respect for the people you work with, no matter what the level of illness is um, they're coming to you with. The other thing I think we all have to be aware of, um, Robin, and I know you are, is just like our own emotions. Mm -hmm. Like I use my emotions to guide my work. If I'm sitting with a client and suddenly I get really sad or, you know, I, I need to kind of do my own piece of work to identify what's going on? How do I manage that?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that we need to keep doing our own work so that we're learning and we know why something or how something might have come up for us. When we have those hard moments with other humans that trust us, that We trust whether that mutual respect is be willing to do the repair work if necessary to make it different and better and safe.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I'm going to say is I think that we work with very large teams, which is different than any other field, actually. And I think that we have to really be respectful of each other's differences on the team. And how do we collaborate when we may not fully agree? Because that happens a lot. You know, one provider is like, I think this person needs to blah, blah, go to a higher level of care. And you're like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm there yet. And and it takes a lot of trust in the team to discuss and negotiate how to manage. And it, that's not easy. And that's not many people in the field don't deal with it as much as we do.
1: I agree with you. I think we we talk a lot On the podcast about collaboration, which has to happen in this area of the field, it is a whole other piece, right? Because then you as the clinician, one of the members of the team are then also working with multiple different providers, some that you know, maybe some that you don't know, and their views and background are going to be different than yours. And then how do you come together together? or not, right? Because you can right. be in a situation where a team member holds one view and another holds another and yeah. that's okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's it's more complicated in our field than in others. And I just want to make note of that because it, it's a lot of work to collaborate with as many people as we do. I mean, I just did set up a team meeting. I don't know. It's like with eight different individuals. Like, we do that all the time, you know? And it's like, and even actually it was very sweet. The family wrote to me and said, I know this is not easy, you know, to organize our schedules and all the team schedules, but it's necessary. It is necessary. And I think that that's something that's different in our field. We do what's necessary to service people, which sometimes is very complicated.
1: It's hard. I'm seeing more families, and I'm sure you are too, where that wasn't the case, and I think it's refreshing to them when it becomes the case. You know, right. there have to be open lines of communication with the school, the PCP, all all the folks yeah. right, on the team. Yeah. yeah,
2: and sometimes, you know, even with our, you know, if you really want to help somebody recover, like an adolescent, sometimes it even requires team meetings for everybody once a month, you know, the clinician, the dietitian, the doctor, the parents, you know, sometimes you're working with parents who have divorced with multiple other people involved or grandparents. I think if the parents are able and, you know, I think everybody coming together and looking at the treatment plan and where are we going, you know, is this working or You know, what do we need to set up in the future? And I think not when I usually when I get involved in a team as a consultant, I find a lot of times they haven't been doing that enough. Mm. And it needs to and parents need to be empowered to say, I don't know, if you're if you're working with somebody December, but their plan is to send their teen to camp in the summer, it's like, whoa, 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 what needs to happen for that to feel safe for everybody? And I I do like what I call a lot of anticipatory work. I and, I, and people are like, why are you talking about the summer? I'm like, because we need to be at a certain place by March or April, mm-hmm. in order for everybody to feel safe to to develop this plan. Right. You know. So I think I think really far ahead of time. Which I don't know if that's helpful or not.
1: Sometimes, but. I think it is. I, you know, I think a lot of that for me stemmed from college health days. You know, every person I saw would need a new person to see over break or during the summer and making sure those referrals were in place and collaborating with that person um, or that team. And during COVID, what was one of the silver linings was we could keep seeing people state to state, right? That didn't, that didn't go away for that person or that family. And what I'm hopeful for is that we'll see more of an ease for folks in that regard. So it it is easier for them to not just access care, but keep care and keep consistency of care. I think that's important. Absolutely. So I'm truly grateful for you being here today. And I know you're a very busy person. And is there anything else that you would like our listeners to hear besides get in touch with you to be, not, not, not to get in touch with you Oh no, no to get in touch with you <laughs> to to find more about how to become a family therapist in the field that of would be disorders but i am happy
2: to talk to anybody i like i i think the thing that is most important to me is that i know it's been very controversial lately about palliative care and belief in recovery i, I think that i really believe that a large population of the people we work with are capable of change whether they will get to a place where they feel fully recovered but even in my most my my clients with most multiple diagnoses and all of that i i think our job is to help them see the changes they've made and and many many people don't recognize it unless you point it out i think that I believe that kind of and I've said this before, you know, miracles happen, we never know. Mm-hmm. And so I I think that I'm I'm a realist, but I also want my patients to see how much change they've made in the time I've worked with them, and I think that what I try to do as a clinician is every 6 months to a year at least sit down with somebody and say like, where, where have we been? Where are we at? Let's reassess. Are you kind of embracing all the shifts you've made in your life? And it, you know, some people are like, no, I have nothing. Nothing has changed. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I want you to think about this. And I obviously want them to come to me and tell me how they think they've changed. Cause that's most helpful to them. But if not, I'll try to help them see the, the shifts they've made. It's important to me too, as their therapist, to be able
1: to see that. You taught me that in supervision, like, you know, taking stock, right? Taking a moment, looking back. The shifts and the changes can be what another human might look at and say, why does that even count? Why does that even matter? But we know for that particular person that we're working for, that it is huge. And validating that for them, that's part of the hope, part of the recovery.
2: Absolutely. And I think that people in the field need to get support if they're not feeling excited about their work. And that's okay. I I understand that. But our job is to be as present as we can mm-hmm. and to be hopeful and I hope somewhat excited about what we're doing in our lives. This is This is not a profession where you just go to work. No. And you get through your day because that just doesn't, isn't a good look for us.
1: And it doesn't help that the humans that you're working with. It's just, it's a dynamic field. It's one with what I hope is always learning self care and learning about the self as well as learning from our patients every day. Thank
2: you, Beth, for all of your time. You're very, very welcome. Anytime. How do people find you? Um, they can go to my website, Mayer L-I-C-S-W dot com. So um, I, I am slowing down. I'm not taking as many referrals anymore. Just, you know, putting it out there. But um happy to help people find them. Once in a while, I do have an opening. So
1: we'll keep that in mind. So B-E-T-H-M-A-Y-E-R-L-I-C-S-W dot com. Thank you so much. Take you
0: care.
2: are very welcome.
0: Thank you for joining us for the NPRD podcast with Robin Kievit. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate and review us and share this valuable podcast with friends and family. Help and hope is found here. For more, just go to RobinKievitt.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N-K-I-E-V-I-T.com. Or check out TheNPRD.com.